again, want to welcome you if you are here worshiping with us this morning for the first time, and we're glad you're here. If you would, grab your Bibles. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, together this morning. We're going to be looking at several different passages uh, in, in 1 Corinthians. The end of chapter 12, we're going to be looking at the last part of uh, verse 31, and then several verses into chapter 13. And as you're, as you're turning to that passage, it's printed also for you in your bulletin. Consider a couple things this morning about this passage. One of my professors in seminary said these letters to the Corinthian churches should never have been written. When you kind of step back and, and look at, at the themes and the problems of the Corinthian church, um, most, most pastors kind of look and just go, these, these problems aren't small. These, these are major problems going on at the church in Corinth. In fact, they are, they are so spiritually bankrupt. Um, they are so far gone <clears throat> that um, why even send a letter? It's, it's, it's really that bad. Um, the situation is, is that dire. But he says, you know, with that in mind, consider this. The Lord in his mercy and the Lord in his grace didn't send just one letter to this church, but he sent two uh, through one of his most powerful messengers, Paul. And so what does that tell us this morning? That despite how, how far gone things are, there is mercy and there's a Lord who pursues. And so the question for us this morning is what's, what is so dire? What is going on uh, in this church in Corinth? Well, let's find out. We're going to begin in verse 31 of chapter 12 and end in chapter 13 with verse 13. This is the word of God. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So now faith hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us what we don't deserve this morning? Would you give us understanding? Would you give us insight? Would you reach down? Would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts? Grant us a heavenly humility. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would comprehend your word as you have written it before us. Remove the scales from our eyes. Allow us to see your truth so that from our lips you again might draw praise and worship and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What marks, um, what is the true mark of of, a true fan of of football? Uh, Last week we talked about pirates, this week we're talking about football. What's, what's the mark of a true fan of football? There, there are some guys who have taken their, their love for football to an extreme. Perhaps you read this or heard about this story this week. If you really love football, you play this game called fantasy football. I haven't played it, so I'm going to try to explain it without having played it. But typically what this, this game is, is if you love football, you kind of get a group of people around you and you form this fantasy football league, okay? 
and you don't draft teams, but you draft individual players from different teams. And, and depending on how well your players play that week, that week, you get a certain number of points. And at the end of the week, you tally up the points. And at the end of the season, whoever has the most points wins, right? <clears throat> well, there's this fantasy football league that has really taken it to the next level. Here are the rules. If you win, if you have the most points at the end of the season, your job, what you get to do is you get to create a tattoo. And this tattoo is, uh, what they've done is they've tried to create the most ridiculous and the most awkward, the most embarrassing tattoo that they can come up with. And this tattoo is placed on the body of the loser of the Fantasy Football League. Now, the loser gets to decide where the tattoo goes on his body, but he does not get to decide it. Okay, so last year's tattoo it had something to do with YOLO and Justin Bieber. <clears throat> this year, the tattoo had, you know, again, something to do with a, a wrecking ball and, and Miley Cyrus. Okay, so these aren't noble tattoos. I mean, these are, these are highly embarrassing, okay? <clears throat> they, they have taken fandom, you know, of football to the nth degree. Well, what's the mark of a true, you know, Clemson fan, okay? Um, do you have to have been a fan, you know, before, like, the Danny Ford era? Is that the mark of a true Clemson fan? What's the mark of a true South Carolina fan? One of my friends would say, uh, well, if you're, you're a true South Carolina fan, if you know that the colors aren't red and black, it's, it's garnet and black. It's not red, it's garnet. That's how you know you're a true fan of South Carolina, right? Have you ever noticed this, how, you know, as we consider, you know, friendships, as we consider, you know, things as mundane as, as football um, and, and, our, and our own loyalties to football teams, how we, how we have this tendency of, of kind of drawing this, this, this invisible line things, and we'll say, anything above this line, this, this, this depicts, this describes a, a true fan. This, this is, a, this is a, a real husband. This is what a real husband does. This is what a real wife does, right? This is what a real fa- football fan does. They attend all home games, right? Only real fans do that. This is what a good home is. A good home has this. This is what a good church has. Right? We kind of draw these invisible lines um, around everything. And, and the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is that when it comes to the Christian faith, and when it comes to following Jesus Christ, is there a mark? Is there a line? Is there something, and Lord willing, something hopefully simple that we can say, this above all else, this virtue above all others, this is the true mark of a Christian? Wouldn't it be nice that across denominations, you know, across churches, we could all agree and just say, this... This is, what, <clears throat> this is what marks a, a, a true Christian from a fake one. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul does that. He, he's talking to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, look, <clears throat> you have spiritual gifts. Those are great. You have wisdom. You have understanding. That's so helpful. <clears throat> you understand that it's important to be socially active where you are. That's great. But those aren't the marks of true Christianity. What does he say? He says the real mark of a Christian is love. And we're tempted here to think at this point, as a, okay, well, maybe that's... Now, remember, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Maybe that's just what the Corinthians needed to hear. How do we know that's something that the church universal um, should be adhering to? How do we know that's, that's what Jesus had in mind? Well, consider what happens in John 13. Remember what Jesus says, what he teaches? He says, you will know that you're my disciples by what? By your love. Right, So this is not just something that the Corinthians need to hear. This is something all of Jesus' disciples need to hear. What's the true mark of a Christian? How do you know you're a real one? You will know 
by your love. I want to look at three things this morning uh, as it pertains to love. So if you're keeping points, here's here's the three points. The first one is this, is what has love got to do with it, okay? What's love got to do with it? Second, all you need is love. And third, endless love, okay? What's love got to do with it? All you need is love. And then lastly, endless love. Okay, what's love got to do with it? From the get-go here, what Paul is saying is, look, he's not so much concerned as, as to what the Corinthians are doing, but he's asking the question, why are you doing it? What is propelling you? What is, what is your motive? What is your ambition here? What's, what's the heart behind why you're doing everything you're doing? And he says, love has, to, love has, love has everything to do with it. Um, look with me at verse 13. Um, chapter 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And now go back to the end of chapter 12, verse 31. He says, I will show you a more excellent way. What is this more excellent way? It is this way of love. Now, if you and I were to walk into the church in Corinth, and if we were just to be, you know, just observers, like a fly on the wall, we would see, again, like I mentioned before, you know, a church that, that has understanding, knowledge, wisdom. They're a very intelligent group. Um, they have the ability to speak other languages. And, and they're very socially aware. And, and so from the surface, if we were just there for a couple hours, we might just go, well, you know, what's, what's the big problem here? I mean, from the, from, the, you know, from the behavior of the church, things look okay. But what Paul here is saying is, is there's a problem of motive. There's a problem of impulse. All of these things are being done. But what are they being done for? They're being done for selfish ambition, selfish glory. It's, it's, it's the religion of the first person. Who is on the throne at the church in Corinth? Individuals were. And we kind of have to step out of our passage, you know, to get a, a greater sense of that. Um, but here's what was kind of going on in the church. People were arguing, you know, whose, whose gifts are, are more important than others? And what are you really arguing about if you're arguing whose gifts are more important than others? What are you really arguing about is who is more important than the other person? You remember that argument the disciples got in with Jesus before, or as Jesus was talking um, about his imminent um, crucifixion and resurrection. He, he's telling his disciples he's about to die. And what do the disciples ask? Yeah, that's, that's great, but who can sit on your right and who can sit on your left? Who's going to have power and who's going to have glory with you? We sense the same thing is kind of going on here at the church uh, in, in Corinth. This, this religion of, of the first person. And if we're honest with ourselves, um, this, this is something that you know, is not just unique to the church in Corinth. I mean, this is something that has plagued humanity since birth. I mean, this is, this is the root of the problem in Genesis chapter 3. And then when you get to Genesis 9 in the Tower of Babel, this problem explodes uh, across the globe. It's this, it's this desire, it's this proclivity um, to, to, to center your world around something, and that something is you. Right? It's, it's, it's the Lady Gaga worldview. You know, I do it for the applause. Uh, and, and so, if we're good students of the scripture this morning, we ask ourselves a question. You know, who, who, who gets the returns from all of our spiritual investment this morning? Think about that. Give yourself a spiritual audit this morning. I mean, the la- we, we just ended this, um, you know, the, the fiscal year a couple weeks ago. And, and that's the time when, you know, donors tend to give more money than ever. And we're not just talking about money here, but we're talking about your, your spiritual gifts, your, your wisdom, all of your social activity. Who, 
Who benefits? Who gets the returns from all of your spiritual investments? What was happening in Corinth is, is that they were. They were on the throne. They were getting the glory. It was for their own ambition. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And we do that a lot, don't we? And we've actually gotten really good about making a name for ourselves, but making it look like we're loving other people, right? We can make a service. Uh, we, can make, we can make teaching. We can make social activity look like we care about other people, like we love other people, and like we're fueled by love. But we're scratching this, this pride itch in our heart going, am I significant? Who gets the return on your investments, on all your spiritual investments? I want to come back to that question here in a minute. Paul says at this point, you know, spiritual gifts are great. We need to know what they are. Wisdom is very important in the kingdom of God. These are all great, but what's, what's love got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. This is what propels a Christian. This is the powder that's behind the round. This is the wind that fills uh, the, the sails of a ship for the Christian. The Christian is not motivated by self, pride, or ego. What is he motivated by? He is motivated by love. He is fueled, compelled at the impulse of love. He says this is the mark of the Christian. Well, why is love a more excellent way? Why is it the greatest of all virtues? Well, look with me again at verses 1 through 3. He says, this is... You know, and as we look at these passages, look at how they end. And, and notice specifically what happens if, if we are doing great things, if we are exercising our spiritual gifts, if we are knowledgeable, wise, if we have faith that can move mountains, if, if we are socially active and we're sacrificing, if we're giving. What is the ends? What happens? You know, eschatologically, cosmically, in God's economy, what happens when we do this without love? Look at what Paul says here in these three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Let's take that one first. Paul says, you know, let's say you have spiritual gifts. Let's, let's say you're a Renaissance man, you are a Renaissance woman. In God's economy, if we were to stand before God, you know, we did all of these without love, what is the product? Paul says, look with me again right there at the end of verse 1. He says, you're a noisy gong, you're a clanging cymbal. Maybe you remember this from the last World Cup, but um, it, it kind of got annoying after a while. But you remember those, those plastic horns that everybody had? I mean, you could, you could barely hear the commentators, right, because you had this low hum, you know, just echoing throughout, you know, the stadium. And, and while in the stadium and, and, and during the game, they were great. I mean, it just kind of created this cool atmosphere. But imagine what good that horn does you outside of the stadium, right? Imagine taking that to work. Imagine taking that home, right? In essence, what Paul and what the Lord, what the Lord is actually saying through Paul here is that, that, is, um, that that's, that's pretty close to home when it comes to using our spiritual gifts without love. What good does it do? You're just making noise. It's clamor. It's clatter. And it's very distracting, <laughs> quite honestly. It says Nothing. Well, notice what he says next. He doesn't stop there. He says, and consider this, if you have prophetic powers, verse 2, and you understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and if you have all faith who has to move mountains, right? These are the people who suffer from the gift of intelligence, right? You can get to the bottom of things quicker than most. Um, you're, 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 you're very smart. You're very intelligent. You're quick learn. What does he say if, if, we, 
if we're exercising these gifts, if, if, if we're embodying these in the life of the church, but we're doing so not at the impulse of love, but at the impulse of, of vain conceit and selfish ambition, he says, what, what does this produce? Look with me at the end of verse 2. He says, I am nothing. You are nothing. You have no identity. How easy is it right now in, in this day and age to travel without identification? Because of you know, the, the Freedom Act, it's, it's near impossible. If you don't have a passport, if you don't have a driver's license, if you don't have a birth certificate, if you don't have a stated identity, you can, you can do nothing. You can't work. You can't bank. You can't travel. And what God here is saying is, say you have wisdom. Say you have knowledge. But if you have it without love, you have no identity. You're nothing. Sting yet? He doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, consider this. Perhaps you're socially aware. Maybe you know um, that there's a world out there that, that needs help. And you deliver up the most important of resources that we have on earth, which is human life. Consider, you know, you sacrifice yourself uh, on, on behalf of others. What if you, what if you do this but it's not fueled and it's not motivated by love. What's the outcome? What does he say here at the end of verse 3? He says, you gain nothing. When we stand before God and we say, I sacrificed everything, money. I gave money. I even gave my life. He says, your portfolio is empty. You have no tokens. You have nothing to barter with. You're empty-handed. It reminds us of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? This conversation Jesus is having with the crowds. <clears throat> Let me read it for you. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, what? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then what is, how does Jesus respond? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you go, lawlessness? You never knew me. Why? It's because these were not rooted in love. This, word, this, this verb here, to know, is a very intimate verb. It's not just to assent or to understand, but it's, it's, it's a very intimate word. It's, it's to have faith in, it's to trust, and it's to love. And that's why they're lawless. Because what is the law of the New Testament? To love God and love neighbor. Now, at this point, we're, this is a lot of bad news. And if we're honest with ourselves, um, and we're going, man, who, who, who pays the dividends and who gets the returns on a lot of our spiritual investment? That's a very damning question to ourselves. Because we, it, it reminds us that oftentimes we, we, we enthrone ourselves and we dethrone Jesus Christ, who is at the center of, of, of all of creation, of, of this universe, of this kingdom. And we constantly are putting ourselves in his place. And so the question is, 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 what do we do with this? What do we do if we're honest with ourselves and we say, there are things here that should not be there? How, how do you dethrone yourself? Um, something we, Brian and I, bring up uh, often, it's not to badger and it's not to belittle, um, but it's because we need to be reminded of it often. It's, it's the practice of repentance. It's oftentimes we will find our, ourselves in, in discord with Scripture out of line with Scripture. And oftentimes, we, we can walk through those double doors with this, 
the sense of guilt and shame, and we don't need to stay there this morning. We don't have to stay there this morning because what God offers his people is this, this gift called repentance, which is where we actually turn from one thing and we place our faith in something else. And the good news about that this morning is that's not your job description. That is not in the job description of the, of the Christian. God provides repentance. Only God, through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can change a hard heart, a heart of stone, into a heart of flesh. And so how do Christians repent? Is it just this sense of, of remorse and guilt and shame and like, man, I need to try to do better. That's awful. No, it's, it's a spirit of confession. Lord, I've put myself on the throne. Take me off. Help me. Help me to love. Help me to be more concerned about you, the glory of the Father, and about other people instead of myself. How often I pursue selfish ambition. How often I pursue vanity. Help me. Rescue me. That's why we have confession in in every worship service here. it's, It's the path of the Christian. That's his job. That's the Spirit's job is to change the heart. It's our job to confess and make that known before the Lord. We don't have to stay who we are, but, but know this. This is something we don't like as Americans. Change in the church and change in God's economy is measured in years, not in days. You may live tomorrow and go, the problem is worse than I thought. I have more to confess than I, than I realized. Stick with it. Ask the Lord for help. Keep repenting. And this time next year, ask yourself, am I a little better? Do I love the Lord more? Do I love others more? Give yourself a little grace there. Growth is measured in years. Um, Last thing I want to look at this morning is everlasting love. Uh, Why is is love better? Why does love endure? Uh, Look with me at verse 8. Paul says it very starkly. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So why is, why is love better than gifts? Why is love better than wisdom, faith in miracles, giving? Paul says in the end, they cease. They go away. They will end. And the question is why? Why do they cease? Why do they end? Why do they go away? And consider this as we kind of wrestle with this. Um, the Bible starts um, long before Genesis 3. We, we tend to start our, our description about Christianity with Genesis 3, but it actually starts in Genesis 1 with, with really good news that man is created in the image of of God, um, and he's created to rule and subdue the earth. And then this, this virus, this, this selfish ambition, this pride and this, this ego enter the story, and we, and we are the carriers, right? And what we see in Jesus' life and ministry is, is, is he comes face-to-face with this virus. He comes face-to-face with this curse and says, my efforts, my energies are going towards undoing this curse, as some have called it, reversing the curse. Right? Any Boston fans here? Reversing the curse. And, and so why is Jesus giving sight to the blind? It's because blindness is, is a sign of the curse. Why is, is Jesus healing the lame? Because lameness is a sign of the curse. Why is Jesus bringing light and understanding? Because confusion is a product of the curse. Why is Jesus offering his gifts, his abilities, his sacrifice? You know, as the lyricist puts it, in hopes that these sad things are becoming untrue. And that's why we, as Christians and as followers of Jesus, exercise our spiritual gifts, exercise wisdom, exercise understanding, sacrifice, and faith. It's not for selfish ambition, but it's to undo this curse. One acre at a time, one person at a time, one untruth at a time. 
were actually winning back enemy-occupied territory. And what scriptures tell us is that one day this curse is going to end. And therefore our efforts, our preaching, our, our gifts won't be needed against the curse anymore. You know, Brian has, has mused a couple times, you're not going to need pastors in the new kingdom. You're not going to need the Bible in the new kingdom. We're not going to need communion in the new kingdom. Why? Because we have the Lamb face to face. Some things are passing away because of this world we live in. Some things are temporary. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Gifts, tongues, all these things, they pass away. We're not going to need them in the life that is to come. But there is one thing that endures. There's one thing that is everlasting. There's one thing that is excellent. There's one thing that is greater than all things, and that is love. And the question is, why does love endure? Why does love carry on and not these other things? Well, consider this. And maybe you've noticed this, but every group, every institution, every fraternity, sorority, club, you know, sovereign nation, everybody either has a stated or unstated constitution, something that they live by, right? If it's your fraternity, it's probably just have fun at all costs, right? That's, that's what you live by. You know, but we have, as a nation, the United States, a constitution, right? This is what we live by. These are our freedoms. These are our truths. And the question for us this morning is, is, what is the constitution of heaven? What is its vision and mission statement? What is the thing that defines and rules it? And what Paul tells us here is that it's love. That is its constitution. Love for God and love for others. It's what rules the behaviors in the new Jerusalem. And the question is this. If, if it's not love, if it's, if it's spiritual gifts, if the exercising of spiritual gifts was the constitution of God's people... It was the constitution of heaven. Who would heaven be full of? Renaissance men and women. And all of us who aren't as gifted as them, we'd kind of feel like, kind of a little out of place, wouldn't we? What if the constitution of heaven was the exercise of wisdom, knowledge, and faith that could move, move mountains? Who would heaven be full of? Intellectuals, sages. And those of us who don't suffer from, from intellectualism, we would kind of feel left out, wouldn't we? What if the constitution of heaven was was social activity, was giving. What would heaven be full of? It would be full of philanthropists, social activists, right? And those of us who are, you know, uh, who are bound in the home, we would kind of feel left out, wouldn't we? But the good news is that's not the constitution of heaven. That is not the constitution of God's people. What is it? It is love for God and love for neighbor. And why is that encouraging this morning? Who doesn't want to be a part of a kingdom that's ruled by that? Consider a question. What would happen to a people if this was their constitution, if this, this was their rule, this was their vision and mission statement, to love God, bring glory to God the Father, and to love other peoples? No vain conceit, no selfish ambition at all. What would happen to this group of people if, if the governor of these people didn't believe in that? What would happen to this group of people? It would implode, wouldn't it? Everybody has to be on the same page. The governor, the people, everyone have to be on the same constitution, the same rules, the same guidelines. Well, consider this. When we were looking at Revelation this past year, what we said was the centerpiece. You know, what, is, what is at the center of, of this new Jerusalem? It's, it's, it's not a people. Uh, it's not a tree, but it's a person. It's this person, Jesus Christ. And when you look back on Jesus' life, you know, his th- three years, and, and especially his three years in public ministry... Who benefited um, from Jesus' spiritual investment? Think about that. Remember, Jesus had supernatural abilities. He had incredible spiritual gifts. What, what did Jesus do? Jesus created this world we live in, 
along with the Trinity. But what else did he do? How did he exercise his spiritual gifts, his abilities? Didn't he heal the blind? Didn't he help the lame to walk? Those who were bleeding, he would stop the bleeding. Who benefited from Jesus' spiritual gifts? Was it not other people? And if we had supernatural power like that, if we were the creators of this world, and we used our abilities for our own vain purposes, you know, we'd be like, boy, did you see that sky today? <laughs> Talk about blue. Isn't that awesome? This guy, right? But there, there's, there's not an ounce of vanity in Jesus. Who reaped the rewards of his spiritual gifts? People did. And who did he give glory to? He said, no, I have not come to bring glory to myself. Who did I come to bring glory to? I came to bring glory to the Father. Let me ask this too. Who, who reaped the benefits from, from Jesus' wisdom, his understanding, his teaching? Was it not the confused? Uh, was it not the lowly? Was it not the lost? Was it not the prideful and arrogant? Who, who reaped the reward from Jesus' intellect, his sharp mind? Was it not other people? Was it not his people? And then lastly, when it comes to, to giving and when it comes to sacrifice, who benefited? Did Jesus Christ flex his muscles on the other side of the tomb and just say, how awesome was that? Who, who reaped the benefit from Jesus Christ's sacrifice and his power over death? Those who were under the wrath of God, his people. Who reaps the benefit from his sacrifice? The lost. Those who are condemned. Those who can't see. Those who can't understand. And we ask this morning, who is the governor of this new creation, of this new world? Aren't you glad it's Jesus? I am. Because it wasn't just just one moment. It was a lifetime full of bringing glory to God the Father, of loving God the Father, but also of loving people. And he says, we get, to be a, we get to join in on that. And we get to be a part of the group um, that loves this world into the new Jerusalem. Let me, I want to end with this, this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says, there's more of heaven on earth to be obtained than most Christians are aware of. There's more heaven on earth to be obtained than most Christians are aware of. What does this mean? Well, um, somebody else in the church said this, not me, but I'm, I'm quoting them. And kind of in a spirit of confession, they just said, it is so easy to leave this church parking lot and take a right. It is incredibly difficult to leave this church parking lot and take a left. When you look at what's down that way, or excuse me, what's down this way, there's lights, there's beauty, there's creativity, there's fun, there's energy. When you look at what's that way, it looks rough. It looks hard. It's difficult. We know on the front end it's going to take work, energy, sacrifice. It's so much easier to take a right than it is to take a left. Is this the guilt trip? No. What we're supposed to do this morning is we're supposed to take in and enjoy and grasp this great love that Christ has offered us, this pure love, this untainted love for us, and say, we get to join in in the process. It is the mark of a true Christian. Why wouldn't we? Love rules. Love wins. Love endures. May that be said of us as a church. Let's Let's ask the Lord of that together. Let's pray. Lord, protect us from the evil one who would seek to discourage us, to condemn us, to make us feel guilty and paralyze us. But Father, remind us
and like a mantle over our heads. Help us to believe, and perhaps like we've never believed before, that we have been loved with an everlasting love through Jesus Christ, your Son. And may that be our impulse. May that be the wind that fills our sails. May that be the powder behind the round that sends us into our neighborhoods, our workplace, our friendships, our circles, and offers the same kind of love, a genuine love, a love for God, a love that wants to bring Him glory, and a love for other people. Father, protect us from selfish ambition. Protect us from vanity for Your sake, for Your kingdom. Make it so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.